today we're going to be in John chapter 3. Um, here's the thing with John chapter 3. I don't know how many of you guys are Dave Matthews Band fans. Is anybody a fan of the Dave Matthews Band? Okay. All right. So here's the thing. John 3 is the Dave Matthews of the Bible. What that means is that there are some greatest hits and there are some deep cuts. And you could kind of go one way or the other. You could either go into the hits and have a great time, or you could go into the deep cuts. We're going to try and get ourselves a little bit into the deep stuff early on, and then we want to actually go. We're going to hit John 3, 16, 17, and 18, which are some of the most recognizable verses in the entire Bible, but simultaneously some of the most important, some of the most profound, the most shaping, the most impactful in your understanding of what this whole thing about following Jesus even is. And so we're going to spend a little time up front. Uh, I've given myself about 10 minutes to go into some of, the, some of the deeper things up front that we need to understand that just lay some of the groundwork for why Jesus would even say the things he says in 3.16, 17, and beyond. So with that, let's read through the scriptures, and then we'll start diving into these. So if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 21. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, that's the word of God. Let's pray. 
Jesus, would you be with us this morning? Would you open our eyes to see and understand what it is that you have for us? We want to know what your word says so that we can put it into practice in our lives. So give us grace to hear and understand in your name. Amen. All right, I know I've told you this before, but uh, in the original writings, like the Greek, uh, there are no chapters, there are no headings. Those things don't exist. Those are things that were added later on as helps. So when you have John chapter 3 and a heading right above it, I don't know what your Bible says. Mine says, in bold, you must be born again as the heading to this section. Uh, That does not exist in the original Greek. That's nowhere to be found. And so what we have in the original is a much more seamless transition between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I I want you to hear what it's like if you were to eliminate the chapter break and and hear what this looks like. This is verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So what you get is you get Jesus having a little bit of distance in terms of how much he revealed to the general population because he knew that what was in man was not right and good and pure, but actually it was, it was broken and it would twist whatever Jesus was going to do. So there was this knowledge from Jesus. And John tells us that Jesus intentionally did not fully reveal everything to man. And then he says, now a man named Nicodemus. And so what we get is the first example of a time when Jesus was communicating to specifically a single man, a person, and in that communication, he was revealing things to him that Nicodemus was not fully grasping and not fully understanding. It's helpful to kind of grasp and know and understand that Jesus is cautious about what he communicates. Now that can sound strange to us, He's the son of God. Why would he come to earth and then be cautious about what he communicates? Why would he show up on the scene and say things with a little bit held back? Isn't that counterintuitive to the gospel? Isn't that counterintuitive? Why is Jesus living by fear, some of us might say? But Jesus in this particular situation is not demonstrating fear. He's demonstrating knowledge. And the same thing that he said to his mom in last week's message, my hour has not yet come, is the same thing that he would say in this particular situation. If he were to fully reveal himself, the time was not right, for there were things that still needed to happen before he goes to the cross. And so with that, you have Jesus being selective with how he communicates, and it's an important thing for us to understand that. Now let's talk about Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Now, just so you know, this is, we're getting into some of the deeper stuff. Those two things are not normally put together. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They were not necessarily political leaders. So when you have Nicodemus, a Pharisee, that puts him into one category, and a ruler of the Jews, that puts him into a different category. And here's the third thing. His name is not a normal Jewish name. Nicodemus There are only four instances of the name Nicodemus being given to a Jew leading up to this man, Nicodemus, and all four of them were in the same family. And it was the ruling family of Israel. It was one of the most powerful families in Israel for hundreds of years. So imagine that Nicodemus is not necessarily just a guy that shows up. 
or even just a Pharisee that shows up. This is a representative of Israel that shows up. Now, I was trying to come up with a list of maybe names that would help us understand this, and every name feels loaded. I was like, oh, it's like a Kennedy, and then it's like, oh, that's loaded. It's like, oh, it's like Franklin Graham, and it's like, oh, that's kind of loaded too. And like, just there's, there's families with a legacy, with, with substance behind them. Now, when you say that name, it's like, okay, we're dealing with a representative of a whole, and that's Nicodemus. And so when he shows up, he says, we know And he's not speaking just flippantly about that. He is representing the ruling class of Israel and he's representing the teaching class, the religious elite. He is bringing this sense of, hey, we know. Now, most commentators will look at this and they'll say, well, he's just just doing flattery. This is like the opening of any kind of debate situation where Nicodemus is actually coming to Jesus and he's saying, look, well, here's what we know. Whether he believed that or not, We actually don't believe that Nicodemus was a believer in this particular moment. But if you skip forward to John chapter 19, I believe it's verse 39, we see Nicodemus providing the spices for Jesus' dead body. The same man ministered to the body of Jesus. And most people say that John includes the two ends of the spectrum in Nicodemus' life to represent a journey of faith. That this was a man that started out as an unbeliever And over the course of Jesus' life and ministry and then crucifixion, he found faith in Jesus. So this is one of those ones that it took time. It took time for him to see and to understand. So now let's talk about the things that Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. Because they are deeply offensive to him as a representative. And just so you know, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's actually talking in the plural to Nicodemus. So in the same way that Nicodemus says, we, about all of the people that are standing behind him, Jesus is saying to him, y'all must be born again. He is referencing not just Nicodemus, but everybody that stands behind him, a.k.a. Israel. Now here's the situation that we're into. Three things in the first three chapters of John. First, Jesus in John chapter one, verse 51, tells Nathanael, oh, greater things than these. He says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. So that's the first thing. Again, that might make zero sense to you, but Jesus is referencing a specific vision from Jacob back in Genesis, where he saw angels ascending and descending on a particular land, the promised land. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and it's a representation that God's blessing, God's favor, God's ministry was on Israel, the land, and that through Israel, much was going to take place. There was a covenant with the land. And when Jesus shows up, John 1.51, he says to Nathaniel, this is changing. The blessing of God is flowing through the Son of Man. Angels ascending and descending, it now flows through the Son of Man, not through Israel. And so what we're seeing is a shift in the covenant. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is in the temple. When Jesus comes into the temple in John chapter 2 and he starts flipping over tables and dumping out money and chasing out the animals, what we're seeing Jesus doing is clearing specifically a Gentile court and calling out a Jewish religiosity that had actually turned itself against the outside people coming in. And now here, Jesus says to Israel, don't you know that you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God? 
Now, we all think of born again. I don't know, maybe coming through the 70s, there's this idea of born again. It just has this, this different feel. I say coming through the 70s like I was there, 1979. I was, okay? All right. So this idea of being born again has taken like cultural root. It, it, it defines Christianity. What Jesus was saying was a deeply offensive thing to a Jewish person because Jews were born right the first time. According to their own understanding, they did not need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. They were born into Israel the first time. We already have the path to see the kingdom of God. We don't need to be born again. Now, you might think, what does that have to do with me? Honestly, I don't know how many of you would share your testimony this way, but a lot of us might say, well, I was born in a Christian home. I was raised Christian. I've never really not been a Christian. That's kind of a lot of our stories. We would just we just sort of morphed into Christianity because it was the culture that we were birthed into. And Jesus would say, well, you need to be born again. It's not about the family that you were born into. It's not about your lineage. It's not about your heritage. It's not about how you were raised. It's not even about your culture or the broader culture that you were raised up in. Maybe you have a Judeo-Christian morality that is irrelevant when it comes to seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, now you You all must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. This was never about the birth of your flesh. It was always about the birth of your spirit. So Paul will take this in Romans 4. Now, this is kind of funny because I say that Paul takes this and runs with it in Romans 4. He takes this and he runs with it in Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11 are all about this. They could be commentary on this specific idea of being born again. Israel specifically needing to be born again. Let me just take you over there real quick to Romans chapter 4. And sorry, guys, I'm blowing through my 10 minutes. I'll cut it off real quick here. All right, it says this. Romans 4, 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? And when you see Abraham, think all of Israel, the Jewish nation, anybody born into the promise or covenant of God, the first covenant. That's Abraham. So when when Paul's writing this, he's saying that about all of Israel. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul will go on for chapter after chapter after chapter to say this was never about your birthright. It was always about faith. A call to believe in God. That's what counted Abraham as righteous was his belief in God. It was never the covenant promise about a land. Rather, it was faith and belief that brought him into the ability to see the kingdom. But over time with Israel, just like it has been with us, over time, the people that were just born into the promise lost sight of the need for faith. They lost sight of what it meant to believe in God. And they had fallen into the trap of simply going through the motions of religion. And I'll just, I'll just kind of throw this out there. How many of us were just sort of born into it and have fallen into the trap of just going through the motions? Because the reality is we just sort of get caught up in just kind of doing the Christian thing. 
And a lot of these guys were just kind of doing the Jewish thing. Doesn't mean they didn't know theology. Doesn't mean they didn't go to temple. It doesn't mean they didn't pray. It doesn't mean they didn't tithe. Doesn't mean that they weren't generous or kind or did good works. But Jesus is getting at something very, very, very core. And so what he's saying now is that this promise of God, well, it wasn't about Israel. It was designed to go through Israel. Remember the promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, in you or through you, Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was always the promise of God, through Israel to the nations. It was never designed to stop at Israel. It was always designed to go beyond Israel and to the nations. This is why we say the same thing about us. It was never designed to go to you. It was always designed to go through you to the nations. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. He takes the same commission that he took to to Abraham through you or in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he has redoubled that on believers and said, go into all nations and make disciples. I want all nations to know. And Jesus here to Nicodemus, he's saying some things that everybody needs to hear. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And to get there, Jesus uses this picture of wind in verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The wind goes anywhere and everywhere. It blows over the entire earth. There's not one land that the wind has chosen to blow on. It goes everywhere. And that's the nature of the Spirit of God. That's the nature of salvation is that it goes wherever it pleases. God will take his saving grace way beyond Israel and to the nations. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this is why I'm here. So I want you to follow along. And as we go through the rest of chapter three, I want you to hear how many times Jesus says, whoever or the world. When Jesus says whoever, it's expansive language. It's anybody. And when Jesus says the world, that is typically in contrast to Israel. There's Israel and the rest of the world. If you were a Jewish person growing up, there were two categories of people, Jew and Gentile. That's a Jewish person and the rest of the world. And so when Jesus uses terminology in John 16, John 3.16 through the end of whoever or the world, he's trying to get Nicodemus's eyes up. This is bigger than y'all. This goes way beyond you and into the nations. Okay, so let, now let's take a look. We're into greatest hit zone here. So this is John 3.16 through 21. Uh, let's start at 14. Okay. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... We all know that story, right? Numbers 21.9. Just kidding. Maybe that's super unfamiliar to you. Numbers 21.9 is this wild story where there were snakes in the wilderness and all of Israel was getting snake bit, like actual snake bit, not like the Dodgers snake bit, like actual snake bit. And they were being poisoned with venom of snakes. And Moses turns to God and asks for help. And then he holds up a serpent, a bronze serpent on a post. And everybody that looks at the serpent is healed by faith. It's a crazy story, but it's this picture of if you, if you put your eyes on God, then he heals you. 
And Jesus says, okay, Nicodemus, let's get to the heart of of the matter here. Just like that serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus absolutely would have known that story. Just like the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Jesus is saying, I am going to be put on a pole like that serpent in the wilderness and anyone that looks at me will be healed. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Anyone, anyone that looks at me, they're gonna experience the healing just like what they saw in the wilderness. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, with the headings, for God so loved the world and bold is what mine says right here. And there's a paragraph break between 15 and 16. But if you look at this, whoever believes in him may have eternal life for God so loved the world, Jesus is saying. This is not Jesus shifting gears or 10 minutes later or anything like that. He's saying that the son of man is gonna be lifted up and anybody that looks at him will be healed because God loves the world. He wants to hold up the Son of Man for healing because he loves the world. Now, this is Jesus talking. Jesus has said other places that nobody has seen the Father, or John said that about Jesus. Nobody's seen the Father, but we've seen Jesus. Jesus came from the Father. Jesus is telling us how God feels. If you hear from Jesus how God feels, it should land like a ton of bricks or any amount of bricks because a ton of feathers is just as heavy as a ton of bricks. My kids do that riddle all the time. This should hit us. Jesus is telling us how God feels. If you were ever wondering, what does God think about me? I wonder, does God hate me? Maybe you feel like uh, things haven't gone in your life the way that you would hope, and you feel like, is God against me? Does God not want me to succeed in life? Does God hate me? Does God have it out for me? And Jesus' answer is, well, let me tell you how God feels about you. God loves you so much that he sent his only son, that when you would believe in him, you would not perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus gives this clear picture of like a, a, a dividing line of experience. There's two ways to go in this life. There's either eternal life or there's perishing. And he goes on to explain perishing a little bit. It's harsh language and it sounds so like, Difficult for us to wrap our heads around, but here's the reality of what Jesus is saying. He's saying God loves the world and he wants you with him. He loves you so much that he desires that you would be with him. So he gave, God loves, so he gave. There was something in him that felt and so he did something about it. God loved, so he gave. Okay, think about that. He loved, so he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him, anybody that looks on the, on the serpent, anybody that looks on the sun, raised up on that pole, will experience life. They will be healed. They will experience God's presence. 
and avoid this other consequential outcome, this difficult outcome. Jesus says they won't perish, but they'll have eternal life. But he goes on to explain that. Let's look at verse 17. You can never just take 16 alone. It's so important to see 17, 18, 19, and beyond. Jesus clarifies this. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, condemn and perish. They both have this extremely harsh connotation that make it feel like, okay, God is out for us. He is after us. He's trying to judge us and condemn us and on and on and on. And here's what Jesus is saying. Look, the son was not sent into the world for the purpose of condemnation. This is the story of redemption, not judgment. Here's the reality of our human situation is our story was judgment with or without Jesus. That's the nature of being sinful people. When we're wrong, we're wrong and we're separated from God and we are all wrong. Every single one of us. When Jesus didn't need to come to earth to condemn us, that condemnation was already present. Every single one of us was already condemned before Jesus came. We had no hope of salvation in ourselves. And I will say this as clearly as I can. Not one of us, no matter who you were born to, where you come from, or how you were raised, not one of us is good enough to stand before holiness. Not one. There's not one person that holds up If you think it's the cosmic scale and one day my good stuff will outweigh my bad stuff, the reality is even one ounce of bad stuff renders you unholy in comparison to what is truly holy and righteous and good. By definition, you fall short. I fall short. Every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. And maybe you're sitting there and thinking, okay, so why would anybody want to be with a God so holy? If none of us can stand up to him, if none of us can be eye to eye with him, why would we ever want to experience him? And the answer is because he is what is good and right and pure in this world. And while our inability to stand to him on our own merits, eye to eye, face to face, doesn't hold up. I mean, this is kind of one of those uncomfortable situations. It's a, it's a DTR moment. Anybody ever have one of those conversations in college? Define the relationship? Got to figure out, are we friends? Are we boyfriend, girlfriend? Are we already married? Did we do that? <laughs> this is one of those moments where Jesus is presenting to us where we stand before God. And all of us need to have that moment with God. Am I good enough? God, when you look at me, does this hold up what I think, what I feel, what I do, what I say? Is it pure? Is it righteous? Is it good? And some of us might say ish to that. Good-ish, but the problem is That is not righteousness. That is not holy. I was driving on the 23 freeway the other day, which is the worst. And, um, you know, it says 55. And uh, 
how hard is it to go 55 on any freeway? Just throwing that out there. I know we're not in other parts of the world where maybe that's normal, but 55, like you're getting up to speed, and as you're accelerating off the off-ramp or on-ramp, you're at, you know, 74 already, and it's like, wow, okay, I have to slam on the brakes to hit 55. And I was thinking as I was going there, first of all, I was in my big van, so it's hard to speed in the big van, and I was going, and I was at like 62, and this Tesla just blows by me. I mean, honestly, had to be going 85 on the 23. Not saying it was one of you guys. I just felt the need to say it was a Tesla. <laughs> just blows by me going at 85 or so. And I started to think to myself, oh, if anybody's going to get a ticket, it's that guy. And so I can increase my speed a little bit. Just push it just a little bit more. 64, 67, 70. Still not that guy. I even started having the conversation of what I would say to the cop in my head when he pulled me over. I was like, uh, sir, uh, yes, Guilty. I was speeding. But did you not see the Tesla that blew by me going 85 miles an hour? Why me? Why would you choose me instead of that guy? But the reality is I would have to confess, I am guilty. doesn't matter that the standard of 55 is ridiculous on every freeway. That is irrelevant. Guilty. I would have to pay that ticket. That's what it is when we stand before a living and righteous and good God. It actually doesn't matter what the standard is. Holiness is holiness. And what would be, we like to think of things in fair or unfair. And we might say, well, it's not fair that God would give us one way to him. Why would he only make one path? And the reality is fairness is no paths. Fairness is us living out the judgment for our brokenness. That's fairness. Fairness is us paying the full penalty for our sin. That's fair. What Jesus shows is mercy. Look, God was not okay with us being separated from him. God saw the unrighteousness that was in man and something pinged in him called love that compelled him to do something that would make it possible for us to have life with him. Love drove him to act outside of justice, to overcome justice so that you could be with him and experience life. I know that might sound weird, Justice is all of us experiencing the condemnation that we all deserved and should have been living out for the rest of eternity. That's justice. Jesus overcame justice. Again, strange language. But Jesus overcame justice to say, okay, wait, there's a way. There's a way that you could be with the Father. God loved you so much that he sent me into the world and I'm not here to condemn the world. I'm here to save the world. I'm actually here to rescue you out of condemnation. That's the nature of this relationship. I am here to rescue you out of condemnation and to present you before the living God as righteous and pure and holy. Even though you didn't do it, I didn't earn it, 
I don't deserve it. We sing these songs on purpose, you guys. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But you gave yourself away. That's the nature of the gospel. Jesus said to Nicodemus, God loved this world so much. He's not, he's not looking at this world just like, ah, oh, I never want to see them again. Why couldn't they just do it the way that I wanted them to do it? Why couldn't they just live the way that I wanted them to live? Why couldn't they just be holy? He's not saying I've had it with this place and turning his back on us, exactly the opposite. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not here to get Israel to rise up and to conquer the world and to show the world that God was right all along and Israel was the way all along and Israel's gonna rule the earth better than anybody else ruled the earth. I'm here for a different purpose. It was through Israel that the nations would be blessed. Not judged, not condemned, not destroyed. It was through Israel that all the nations of the earth would be, would you say the word blessed? Blessed. And through Jesus, every single person on earth, God's desire is that they would be, say the word, blessed. You are lacking conviction when you say the word blessed. I'm just being honest. So let's talk about some implications of this for just a minute. We'll talk about four things. This is where we're going to close. If God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that love means four things. First is that God so loved you that he gave his only son. What that means for some of you is that it's really hard for you to believe that you are lovable that you are love worthy, that for any reason God would choose to show you love, clearly this is for somebody else. I've talked to way too many people that sat in church for decades and said, I always believed that what the guy up there was saying was for somebody else because there's no way that God could feel that way about me. And here's what you need to hear. If you're sitting there right now and you are feeling that way, that there... Yeah, God can love some people, but not me. You need to hear that you're wrong. God so loved you that he gave his only son. You could put your name into the text of the scriptures and it would be just as true as him saying the whole world. God so loved you that he gave his only son. That's the first thing. Hold on to that. Kind of stick these in your head. Maybe even jot them down or just kind of think about them. Number one, God so loved you. Number two, God so loved your neighbor that he gave his only son. God so loved your neighbor. He's tried to shape this story in our church, not just Anthem, but in the people of God. He's trying to shape this story that you would see the person near you and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he want that? Does God want the best HOA in the entire world? Does he want us to just have the most epic neighborhood and everybody to get along and everybody to be happy and we all like each other's trash cans and lawns and all the issues that we have, they're just good? Love your neighbor? That's not his motivation. 
His motivation is that you would love your neighbor into the kingdom of God. Because he loves your neighbor more than you ever could. But he's trying to shape in you the same heart for your neighbor, the person near you. Neighbor has to do with the people in your sphere, this idea of both geographically and relationally, the people that are placed in your life. How do you love them? God so loved them that he gave his only son. Do you so love them that it compels you to a different kind of life with them? That's the question. God so loved your neighbor and he's trying to shape that love in us to be different. Okay, number three. You ready for number three? For God so loved your enemy that he gave his only son. One of the core elements of gospel transformation is that followers of Jesus would love their enemy. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. How crazy is it that he named them as enemies and told us to love them nonetheless? And maybe that's the reality, is that in our lives, we are all going to have people that are our anti-hero to our little narrative that we're living in, that person that's out to get us, that doesn't like us, that always seems to want ill for us. They're against us in every way we would identify them as enemy in our soul. Maybe not with our words, because that sounds really harsh. You don't really tell somebody, you're my enemy. But you know who I'm talking about as I describe that person. But the reality is it goes much bigger than that. This is why for the last year, honestly, we have not dived into the political stuff, because the reality is there is not an us and them politically in the church. There just isn't. It doesn't exist. There can't be. There's no room for us in the gospel to say us and them because anytime we put somebody on the them, we've actually done a disservice to our ability to communicate the love of Jesus for those, those people. Now, maybe you're like, well, Jesus called them our enemies, so I can call them our enemies. Okay, fine, call them your enemies and then love them. The reality of that person that is on the other side of whatever divide you happen to exist on is that their being on the other side does not render it okay for you to hate them, to speak ill against them, to slander them, to feel bitterness, anger, and resentment towards them, but rather to love them. God so loved your enemies that he gave Jesus so that your enemies would know him and come to faith in him and be saved by him. And then guess what? Your enemy is now your brother or your sister. Deal with that. That's a reality that we have to deal with is that many people who would be our enemies will become our brothers and sisters and it changes the dynamic of the relationship dramatically. So now let's take it out of the United States. And into the world, there are geopolitical enemies of the United States of America, of freedom and comfort and safety and democracy. And again, our job is not to hate them, speak ill about them, destroy them. For God so loved our enemies that he gave his only son. It changes the way that we live in this life. 
It actually has a dramatic impact on the way that we see the world around us when we understand that God so loved our enemies that he gave Jesus so that when our enemies believe in him, they would not perish, but they would have eternal life. That is supposed to shift your worldview totally and completely. And the last one, number four, is that God so loved the nations. God so loved the nations that he gave his only son. So often our story gets pretty localized to where we just feel what's happening in our immediate world. And many of us, out of pure stress or being overwhelmed, have a hard time lifting our eyes and having any kind of understanding of the world around us. And and part of what the gospel does, the apostolic nature of the gospel, is it stirs up in us the love for the nations that God has. It just changes the nature of our relationship with them. It does something to us that when our brothers and sisters in India are struggling, we feel for them and we pray for them and it stirs us to love them. That we hear about our brothers and sisters in the Philippines living on less than 50 cents a day. The ultra poor, officially classified by the UN, the ultra poor that we feel in our soul a desire to pray for them and to help them and to love them. God so loved the world. It is not an American story. It is a bigger story than that, and it should affect us. This is why John 3.16 matters, because he was talking to Nicodemus and saying, no, 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 Nicodemus, stop, just stop. God does not so love you that he sent the Son so that you, Israel, would be saved and the rest of the world would be condemned. That was never the story. And I will say this to us, because we run the risk. We run the risk of being in Israel's same posture. God does not so love Christians and Christians only. Yes, he loves you. That's why you are here. His kindness led you to repentance. But if that love does not flow through you, you like Nicodemus, have not yet understood the profound nature of the gospel. If that love stops at you, you are missing the point. And you could sit in Nicodemus's seat and Jesus would sit you down and would tell you, you're missing it. That love is designed to go through you, that you might experience it and that you might give it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I just want to ask that you would bless and fill and use this day. First of all, Lord, I just want to, I, I ended that way too heavy. We are talking about the love of God. And I want to start by lifting, just lifting in this prayer. Would you give us a deep breath of joy in the reality that we are loved? God, would you as we sing these worship songs, as we take communion, as we give, as we pray, these things that we do, would you remind us in all the different ways that we are loved by God? Jesus, teach us to worship you as loved people. And then teach us to live as people who love others the way that you loved us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Guys, I am sorry. I felt such deep conviction as soon as I started praying. How can I teach a message on the love of God and it ends heavy? 
I'm serious. I appreciate the laughter, but how could I teach that message? And it ends on us feeling like, oh, I got to love people better. When the reality is, if we don't experience it and feel it, then what comes through us is going to be amiss anyways. And I want you to know that you are loved. When you take communion, you should have a smile on your face. Communion can be somber. It can be a moment of repentance. But the reality of communion, it is, it's designed to lift our eyes to the finished work of Jesus. We talk about that phrase all the time. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. This is how much I loved you. It is finished. It's done. You don't need to do all the work to try and get to heaven. You don't have to be the sacrificial lamb. I was. It's done. And so I, I actually, I don't know what our first worship song is. Is it heavy or is it? Oh, no, it's not heavy. Okay, good. <laughs> Okay, this is one that in the full freedom of the love of God, I want to hear us belt it out. So what we're going to do, we're going to stand, we're going to respond in worship. If you want to be prayed for today, for any reason, our prayer team would love to bless you. They want to pray the love of God over you. What happens, we've noticed this, we will be praying for somebody and it can feel weird to go up there. It's not weird to even go stand in a short line and wait to be prayed for. That's not weird at all. We want to pray for you. And so if our prayer team is occupied, just wait. We, we desperately want to minister to you and encourage you and pray for you in the name of Jesus. So please don't hesitate on that. We have communion available. We encourage you at any time while we're singing to come and grab the elements of communion, take them as a family, take them as a group, celebrate the finished work of Jesus. It's a good thing. We do giving either in the cans at the hospitality tent or we do giving online. We encourage generosity as a way of life. And we are going to sing, and this first song is designed to like, like real sing. And it's supposed to lift us up. And so if I could just, again, even repent of letting heaviness linger about the love of God and release you in the full joy of God's love for you to rejoice. Let's do that. So let's stand and let's sing.